0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes and Noble. I'm Ewan Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And of course, you know Kwame Alexander's name. The question is do you know him from his middle readers? Do you know him from the memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night? Or are you going to know him from this great, great new anthology of Black American poetry that is just about to come out? So we're taping a tiny bit in advance. But there's also been television projects and there's a Newberry Medal for the crossover, which we might talk a little bit about that Disney Plus show. Anyway, Kwame, thank you so much for joining us on Poured
1: Over. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: So question for you. This is the Honey, is the new anthology of poetry. And you are working on 97,000 things. I love this jacket so much. It is so good looking, this jacket. And the contents are amazing. But... How did you find the time? You read something like a thousand collections of poetry. Maybe I'm exaggerating a tiny bit, but I mean, an anthology doesn't just kind of come together out of stuff off of refrigerator magnets, right? Like you are sitting down and working this through and it's also not tiny. I didn't check the
1: page count, but
0: I mean, how many poets are here? How many, how many different
1: pieces? About 150 poets. Okay. Maybe about 160 poems. Okay. And none of them have been anthologized before. Right. So I read a lot of books.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Okay.
1: And I called a lot of friends. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had an amazing sort of uh, editorial consultant, Marjorie Wentworth, who's a friend and a former poet laureate of South Carolina, who was teaching a class on on African-American poetry. She sort of helped me call together a lot of pieces. So... It was a combination of all those things that, that, that got us to where we are today.
0: I mean, one of the things that was such a pleasure for me is that there were a lot of names I recognized. Tracy Smith, Jericho Brown, Terrence Hayes, Saeed Jones, Sonia Sanchez. I could go on and on and on, but there were so many people where I was like, oh, this is great. But there were just as many people whose names I didn't recognize. And now I've got this whole new set of poets to chase their work, and I'm really excited about it. So, really, 150 poets, 160 poems. You do have this day gig. <laughs> the editorial work is a side gig. But, how, where did you even start? I mean, I know you just said you called friends and what have, but you had to have an idea. You had to have had a mental map.
1: Sure. Of I mean, what you wanted to do. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've read a lot of anthologies over the mm-hmm. years. I think the first anthology I read, I may have been 12 years old, and my father had a first edition of a book called Black Spirits, which was an anthology of black poets that was published from a festival of black poets in America that was held at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in 1978, produced by Woody King. Mm-hmm. And Toni Morrison had the idea. She was an editor at Random House. And she was like, why don't we publish the poets who you featured at the festival? That was the first book I read, anthology that I read. And it, of course, had Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, Hakeem Adabudi. And what I found interesting is that all of the poets were living. And so when I look at all the anthologies that I've read since, most, if not all of them, have been really comprehensive and had been poets from various decades and generations and eras. So this This is the Honey was sort of a nod to that first anthology in that I wanted all the poets to be living. So that was important to me. The next thing that was important to me is when I graduated from Virginia Tech, having studied with Nikki Giovanni, I fashioned myself a poet, and I submitted to a whole bunch of anthologies and journals, Callaloo, obsidian, and nobody accepted me. They were like, dude, keep writing. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like my poetry was worthy. Now, when I look back on it, it wasn't that great. I get it. But I always thought it was important that when I put this book together, that I would have not only established, renowned, pulitzer poets, but I would also have emerging. Right. Poets who were just starting out like I was had some value who had some worth creative value and and sort of put them together and and create this sort of gumbo um, much like woody king did back in 1978 with black spirit so that was the that was the notion that was the idea and it was you know i would go back and read books by terrence hayes of course who i knew i wanted to be in the book and then i'd also signed up for this A Poem a Day, I think it's by the Poetry Society of America or poets.org. You get a poem a day by a a different poet. So I discovered a lot of new poets that way. I love that. Um, And then just going through the bookstores, through Politics in in D.C., Mrs. Dalloway's in Berkeley when I'm on book tour, and finding books by poets I don't know and recognize.
0: Right. I mean, Nikki Giovanni's opener In this anthology, I, this poem, I love this poem so much. I I didn't, I didn't realize it hadn't, and I just want to make sure I get the title right because the title is so good. Quilting the Black-Eyed Pea, We're Going to Mars, and it is this poem. I mean, what a way to open this collection. I mean, you had my attention from, because again, as you said, these poems hadn't been anthologized before, and, you know, I'm reasonably well-versed. In Nikki Giovanni's work, but this poem was new to me. And I was really excited by that. And, and it's so good. It's so good. But before she was your mentor and before she was your friend, you and Nikki didn't quite oh. connect. And I am going to ask you to tell the story a little bit because I, I love the evolution of your relationship. And I had no idea until I was listening to you actually read your memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, and, and just the way you tell this story is kind of great. So would you mind telling it here? It feels like it informs a little bit of how this book came to be.
1: Well, I have to tell the abbreviated version. Yeah,
0: that's fine. No, the abbreviated <laughs> version is fine.
1: <laughs> Suffice it to say that when Nikki became a visiting professor at Virginia Tech, where I was a sophomore at the time, I was very familiar with her work. My mother had read to me her poems as a child from "Spin a Soft Black Song," and I—I I knew her. I knew who she was, and so when she came to tech, I felt like, you know, I felt pretty privileged, and I also felt a bit assured that, oh yeah, this is going to be easy for me because I know mm-hmm. this woman. I know her, <laughs> and and so I, I got a C in her class, and I—I I was just. I was livid. I didn't understand what the problem was. Um, and then and so I took her class again, a different class. First class was advanced poetry. I should not have been in advanced poetry.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: <laughs> gotta see in advanced poetry. Then the second class was intro to black studies. My father was a black history professor. Right. Like if there's anything I knew, I knew black studies, and I gotta see. I remember having a meeting with her in her office during office hours and telling her this was unacceptable to be getting a C in black studies. And I remember her telling me, Kwame, I can teach you how to be interesting. I can teach you how to write poetry, but I can't teach you how to be interesting. Mm -hmm. I remember storming out of her office. So this became sort of our relationship over the three years that I took her courses, each time getting a C, which to this day she will still deny that she gave me. (laughs) Um, and so in my last year at Virginia Tech, I did something that I would later come to regret. And that is I wrote a play that sort of looked at our relationship and, and the flaws in her teaching, (laughs) Mm among other things. So I left Virginia Tech feeling like we were not friends and we did not like each other. And over the course of the next 10 years, I would see her at various events. And it began with me ignoring or me not, me avoiding her. Mm -hmm. And and until that became almost impossible. And one day I was selling copies of my self published book, and she bought a copy, and I thought it was kind of strange. And she said, Good luck. And I thought that was really odd because we didn't like each other. And and later, um, I would write a book about Tupac Shakur. And she had a tattoo that said Thug Life. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading an article in a St. Louis newspaper about the book. And they quoted Nikki Giovanni saying that I was her literary son. And I was like, what are you talking about? We don't even like each other. Mm -hmm. So then I began to sort of question this notion that we didn't like each other. And it all came to a head in 2006 which would have been about 15 years after Virginia Tech, I had been invited to speak at the New York State English Council. And they paid me a whopping $2,000, which was a lot for, for this poet. And I was the keynote speaker. And I remember I got a standing ovation, signed a lot of books. And as I was leaving, I asked the organizers, how did they hear about me? And they said, oh, we booked Nikki Giovanni, but she couldn't make it. And she recommended you. Wow. Wow. And so then I began to feel really guilty mm-hmm. about all the things I had said and done at Virginia Tech. And I spent the next 10 years trying to apologize and, and just and make good. And, and in 2014 or 13, we, we had managed to, to develop some sort of friendship and kinship, but never having talked about what happened at Virginia Tech, never discussing it, never bringing it up. And we were having dinner at her home um, because her mother had passed, and she wanted to celebrate her mother's legacy by drinking the most expensive beer in the world, which is called Utopias. And so I was with her. We were drinking it, and this would have been twenty plus years after Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting at her table at about midnight, drinking this Utopias, and just I began to cry, and then she began to cry in a way that crying is contagious. But she yeah. she was crying. And I told her I apologize for all the things I had done and said at Virginia Tech. She was like, what are you talking about, Kwame? She <laughs> had no idea. She was like, Kwame, whatever I did, I did to help you become the man you needed to be, the writer you need to be. But when I think about how I became, you know, my parents were my first librarians and educators and teachers. They introduced me to the power of words. And I, I like to think, and I know that Nikki Giovanni showed me how to how to make those words dance on the page and gave me a model for for what I wanted to become in this world which was a writer who not only made a living from his writing
0: mm-hmm. but
1: was able to sort of hopefully ch- help make the world a better place you know one word at a time
0: well and you're also really clear that you're an evolving human being too right that you haven't figured it all out i mean yeah this is partially from the memoir but that's part of the joy of reading the books that you're writing for middle grade as well as watching these kids figure out how to make the world a better place and how to use words and it's really delightful to see sort of the evolution but also this is your 40th book i think do i have that number right
1: yeah this is the honey book 40.
0: 40 books in in it's not like We're talking about a decade-long career. I mean, you have been working for quite almost 30 years, right? I mean, you've been essentially working in books. So you've got multiple houses backing you up. You've got multiple books out there. There's obviously the crossovers. Probably your most famous middle grade at this point. It's the book that won the Newbery Medal. Right. It kind of changed your relationship with your dad a little bit.
1: A little bit? How about about that? Okay. How about, how about before before the crossover? Crossover was book number fourteen or fifteen. Okay. How about before that book, my father and I maybe talked a m- once a month or once every couple months. I didn't really understand him when I won the cross. When I won the Newbery Medal for the crossover, I called him and said, "Dad, I won the new <laughs> And from that point on, we must have talked for an hour every day. Now fast forward more recently when i wrote the memoir and i would come to learn from him from his words his mouth he said kwame your mother and i we viewed you as an experiment we treated you like an experiment <laughs> <laughs> our goal and this is me sort of summing it up right how, how do you create an authentic confident creative critical thinker and writer mm-hmm. who can change the world one word at a time right how do we do that I they set out to do that from the beginning I was the experiment and mm-hmm. so I think when I won that Newberry medal that was sort of you know the the data coming back the results coming back because when he said <laughs> we did it he believed that. Right, we, right. We achieved some modicum of success with our plan, he and my mother. So, you know, as I wrote about in the memoir, that's that's the way I view him. He loved. He loved through words, through the power of words. And so we definitely became a lot more closer.
0: I do. I love that story, though. And the idea, too, that your parents, not just that, okay, it's kind of funny to hear your parents say, well, you were a science experiment, <laughs> but... I'm pretty sure my parents felt that way about my sibling and not my brother and I. They're kind of like, well, let's see what happens. But looking at the body of work you've produced, right? And the fact that you did, even though you were raised with books and your parents were your first librarians and your first sort of bridge to, to words and whatnot, you did have a moment as a kid where you were like, this is not for me. This is not interesting. And it took a biography of Muhammad Ali. You read it in a night and we've all been there where you're like that kid reading the thing and you're just like, yeah, I don't need to sleep. I just never need to sleep again. I'm just going to keep reading. And this is like breathing and oh my God, this is the best thing ever, right? And then you're back into it. And then it sounds like you just never stop. Like it just sounds like you're always working on something.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I look back at my life in my creative life, the Ali was really a reminder. Okay. It wasn't an introduction. It was a reminder that books are cool. Because I, you know, I had grown up reading books like uh, Man Child in the Promised Land, yeah. by Claude Brown, Lucille Clifton's poetry. I, I had grown up reading Dr. Seuss. I had grown up, you know, loving books, but something happened, you know, around middle school when, when the teachers started assigning books that were boring or stayed. Mm-hmm. And my father started making me read his dissertations. And so it seems
0: like a lot. Dissertations seem like a lot.
1: <laughs> again, look, again, it does, right? But then look at me now. Look right. at what I'm doing. Right? Right. Like, <laughs> so I think reading the Ali book reminded me, oh, you do you do love books. Mm-hmm. You know, and so so that's all that that always has been sort of a North Star for me. Yeah. You know, and that and and wanting to when I began to write books, in particular for, for young people, how do I create a literature that does for them what that book did for me, which was basically it was unputdownable. And I learned a lot. And it, and it was well written.
0: OK, so crossover, booked and rebound are one set. And then you started a new series, which begins with The Door of No Return, which is set in Africa, and it is the start of the slave trade. And when you're working in a series, it strikes me that obviously you know sort of where you're going with the narrative. You may not know the exact number of books yet, but you know who is sort of running what's happening. And you've got a really clear voice. Each of these books has a really clear voice. Every book has a really clear POV. And yet with the anthology, you've got to figure out how to structure a voice, right? A narrative voice out of a chorus. Oh yeah. Can we talk about that for a second cuz it is it feels like it's like two separate halves of your brain and almost. Right? Like when it's just you and the page and you're creating the series work and you're and you're sitting with these kids and and giving them their voices or they're giving them giving you their voices, however it works for you. But the anthology is a different thing. So can we talk about how you chose to organize it and how okay. you figured out what's going where and and who cuz it just yeah. seems like a lot. <laughs>
1: I knew that I wanted the book. You know, I'm a big fan of smiling and joy. Yes, and laughing. I'm a big fan of just finding the possible. The saying saying yes to life. So I knew that the poems in this book, when you open this book, I wanted you to feel that yes, that hope. So that was my first thing. Mm -hmm. We're gonna lean into that. Secondly, you read the memoir. You know about my whole relationship to love.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: a lover of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's going to be love. Love is going to be a part of this anthology. Yep. Right. So I've got those two things in mind. So I started there. Okay. That's, I started looking for pieces that fit those two things. Finding love poems was easy. <laughs> like everybody's, everybody's writing about love. Love of self. A romantic love. A longing, parental love, familial love, you know, love of animals love is there. So so that was the category where I had the most poems to sort of choose from. Interestingly enough, contrarily, the poems about hope and joy, not as many. So I knew those 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 two were going to be there. As I'm reading. Um, I'm a big fan of the Black arts movement. And one of the things the Black arts poets, Amiri Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, Esquia Touré, Nikki Giovanni, Quincy Troop, Eugene Redmond, one of the things they did so well was they wrote about these really challenging, tough, tragic, brutal things with such humor. I mean, with such humor, do you ever get tired of people playing with your life? Do you ever get tired of people playing with children's lives? You ever get tired of people telling you what you should be doing for yourself? We all know we look good, but we don't own nothing. We don't have no land, no army, no, like just, just the, the levity at which, with which they wrote mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. These things these that were haunting black people in particular and people in general. I just always found it palatable and digestible. And oh, I could read this forever. And you're laughing a little and you're learning. So as I was researching and finding poems, that stuck out to me, the poems that did that, that wrote about the woe with a lot of wonder, that wrote about the tragedy, you know, but wrote it in a way that made us go, (laughs) really? Wow, and so so then that became a section of the book. Mm -hmm. Okay, after a certain point, the poems found me. Okay, and they began to dictate. Okay, Kwame, you got this poem on Nat King Cole. You Mm -hmm. got this poem on Billie Holiday. You got this poem on John Coltrane. Okay, so there perhaps need to be some poems about people and things. Maybe there, maybe these are praise poems, Kwame. My father was a Baptist minister. Like, There's no way Black people would have been able to survive the the trauma and the brutality of of enslavement, of middle passage, of Jim Crow, of social injustice, if they did not have faith. The church has played such a big role in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a section on faith, on devotion. As I'm writing and culling together and compiling it's a very sort of organic fluid process and every time I sort of you know get on the highway I find another exit that I need to take and so I take it and and take it and, and let it take me where it's going to take me and so that's sort of a my poetic way of describing wh- how these sections and how the format and how this narrative became a thing. And so once I knew what each of these sections were, I knew that the first section was gonna be joy. I was gonna sort of set the foundation. So we called it the language of joy. I knew that the last section was gonna be the praise. It was gonna be the thank yous. I sort of established how we were gonna begin and how we were gonna end.
0: You know, you've talked about in other interviews how the memoir evolved into because the memoir is poetry, it's prose, it's letters, it's recipes. I am going to make that fried chicken. I am going to do it. I have not done very it good. yet I will very good I do not doubt it, but also the instructions are so clear I'm like I can do this <laughs> and I can cook but frying is like it's that's a whole nother level of cooking and I just I sort of now I'm going to do it but the way you talk about the evolution of that book and that you were putting together a collection of love poems and then you realized it needed a little bit of connective mm-hmm. tissue. And yet here with this anthology, it's not quite that it needed connective tissue, but you knew that it needed a little bit of guardrails, you know, just so it brought the reader through. Right. In a way that, I mean, because don't we go from joy to love?
1: We go from joy to love. And then it's heritage. It's It's my family, it's my community, it's where I'm from. Poetry
0: to me, especially now, it's a way to create community. When I hear people connect with poetry, they're not always the biggest readers, right? And I think you've seen this all along with your work when you're talking to people at libraries and bookstores and schools and all of that, that sometimes the person you're not quite expecting to connect as the first person to do it. And then her hand goes up and they're just like, oh, wow, this is the best thing ever. I love that. And I feel like there's an accessibility in this particular collection. Oh, yeah. Right. where, Or like if a kid tells me they like song lyrics, I'm like, so, you know. It's like, thank you, Tupac. (laughs) Seriously, dude, thank you. Because here's a collection that I can give to a kid. You know, a kid's not sitting down and saying, well, this is the formal study of poetry, da 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 da. It's like, tell me a story, and there's a swing on the page.
1: Tell me a story. It gets them to pay
0: attention, right? It's wonderful.
1: Most beautiful accident a single parent's ode. I imagine the day you will ask me, why is our life that Bill Withers song, just the two of us? Mm -hmm. You want to know why your father isn't here, disrupting our doorways, off teaching you dangers I wouldn't dare, how to tumble down hills with grace how to ride a bike with your hands raised in prayer, tossing you about when I'm a stranger to fun, hoisting you to ceiling with biceps twice as strong as mine to make an airplane of you, superhero rocket ship. To my small hands, you're an astronaut, intrepid sojourner. You are universe of brain with buckets of words. So when you finally ask me, why is my daddy a faraway star? I'll say, beloved, you were his most beautiful accident. Blinded him with your big bang. I feel like these poems tell stories in and of themselves, and perhaps as an entire collection, Mm -hmm. they tell a greater story. And I think it's the same story I'm trying to tell in all my books, reminding us at the very least and at the very most, we're human beings, people laugh, love, hope, dream, dance, smile, live. just like everybody else. And Black people need to be reminded of that, and everybody else needs to be reminded of that. Trying to enhance, increase our imagination to really just help us all be better people.
0: Story is how we define ourselves. Story is how we define our world. I mean, I think it's really easy sometimes for people to forget that story is actually the thing you also create your own self out of, right? Like, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is who my people are, this is da da da. All of these people, that's story. It's not like you're writing a 500 page novel necessarily, but right. there, is, there is a story and there's a shorthand and there are jokes that come with where you're from or the jokes that you think should come from where you're from. You are working in multiple formats when it comes to story. The crossover was adapted. For television. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus.
1: It just won an Emmy Award, by the way.
0: Congratulations. That's awesome. And you co-produced it with LeBron James's company, too, which seems like a very good fit for everyone.
1: <laughs> right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> and I have watched a couple of episodes, and those kids are really charming. <laughs>
1: they're yeah, they're, they're pretty dynamic working with them on set, too. So smart. Just really kind. You just loved having their energy around.
0: Yeah, it's all. I mean, I just, I love the idea that it's on the screen too, because it's just another way to bring kids to books, right? Like anything we can do to bring kids to books. Right. I am very, very happy with that. But for you though, I mean, the physical constraints of a script versus the physical constraints of what you can do on the page, right? Like you've done, there's that light for the world to see, which is a really heavily designed set of three poems and it's beautiful, but it's as much about the page design as it is about the words on the page. Whereas with the screen, you kind of do have to conform a little bit to the demands of a script, right? Like a script is written in a totally different way, and then you sort of hand it off to the director and the actors and all that kind of stuff. What's that shift like for you, though? Because you're living in this world, right? Like you've built the original thing.
1: You know, it's not that much of a shift. With sets and costumes and hair and props, you have at your disposal all of these tools that can bring these words off the page and do that work Mm -hmm. for you. So that's one thing. The other thing is because these are novels in verse that I wrote, when we went into the writer's room to start writing the scripts, everyone understood that these were poems that were telling a story. And so we had to make sure that our show lent itself to that reality. We weren't going to change this. So how would poetry then find its way into the show? Well, I was really the only poet in the room. So I got to sort of like, you know, really put forward my will and my skill to ensure that that translation happened in the best way. There was another poet in the room, Aaron Carter, and there were just poetry sort of minded folks folks with poetic sensibilities. So it wasn't as difficult. And then the third piece is poetry is already so concise and rhythmic and figurative. And so it kind of lends itself with that short form language to creating a script, you know, especially if the poetry is done as storytelling as the crossover was. So, I didn't find it that challenging, actually. It kind of worked for me.
0: So does that mean we get more? More television, more adaptations, more... I mean, it seems to me you juggle a lot, and I'm not entirely sure how all of that happens, but okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, I just know I have an amazing team. Right, right. who, Who I work with, who help make all this stuff happen, but... I don't stop to think about how it happens because I probably go crazy too. Okay. okay. It's too much. I, mean, I don't even know if I'm on this interview. Am I in this interview right now? Yes,
0: you are. You are you are fully participating in this interview. Okay, great. See?
1: <laughs> I don't know how this happens. But I'm also
0: trying to I'm also trying to not give away specifics in This Is the Honey, because I do feel like I went because I've read it twice now, and I feel like. The first time I read it completely cold, just knowing it had your name on it and I was probably going to have a really good time. I knew it was coming. I didn't even bother to read the flap copy on the galley because sometimes you just don't. And then the second time when I went back to really think about what this show was going to sort of look and feel like, I mean, my copy is (laughs) so—I'm a very active reader. But I want people to be able to come to the book and have that sort of fresh experience on their own and not, I mean, it's not like you can spoil a poetry anthology. So it's not quite that.
1: I love <laughs> but, that you think that though. That's great.
0: But it's its more like there's so much here and there were so many people whose names were new to me and because sometimes you know and i know we talked about this at the top of the show sometimes with an anthology you're like oh well this is cool i'm happy that the gang's all here but i've kind of been here before and i felt like there was a surprise a good surprise on every page for me even though there were poets whose work i know right and then there were a couple of times you d- there were some people who had two po- like natasha trethaway has two poems
1: you notice that
0: Evie Shockley has two. uh, There was somebody else, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking. But but everyone else had one, and I was just like, huh, there's something going on here, which I am going to ask you about because I was curious. But I just, every single page, I was kind of like, okay, where am I going? It, It felt like a genuine narrative to me. It felt like everything hung together in a way where I was constantly moving forward and wanting to turn the page and wanting to see what happens next. And poetry... Can do that in a single collection by a single poet more often than not, but it doesn't always happen. So, I mean, it was just kind of nice to have this sort of propulsive motion. Because yeah. again, I walked in completely cold. I I knew the anthology was coming. I was pretty sure I wanted to have you on the show. And then I started reading. I was like, oh yeah, we really need to do this. <laughs> this will be a blast. But I think. It is because of the way you structured it, um, something that people really just need to sit with. Some people might just jump to one section and then jump back. I mean, you can read this book any number of ways. You don't have yeah. to read it straight through.: I happen to have enjoyed reading it straight through, And that's how I did it, but you could just also leave this on a coffee table and just dip in whenever you felt like it.
1: Whenever you feel like it. Here's the thing. in, in so many anthologies. Uh. I, I want to be I want to be fair and diplomatic about this, but I also want to be frank. Right. I will say that I wanted to avoid these things that I feel these have happened to to other anthologists. Mm-hmm. One, the notion of clicks. Oh yeah. And I'm I've been tasked to put together this comprehensive anthology but I'm just going to include the people I know or that are in my circle. And, and I knew I didn't want to do that. And here's how I know I didn't do it. One of my books you talked about, I'm not even going to tell you the name of it, but I will say one of my books was reviewed in a major paper and the review, it got slammed. I don't get a whole lot of, reviews that I don't I don't like right I didn't like this review
2: okay
1: and it was by a well-known poet and I was a little upset Mm -hmm. he's in the book I want this book to to be comprehensive and I wanted to be inclusive and I wanted to be it's more than just Kwame it's more than me the other thing I think happens anthology sometimes is poets are writing for other poets. Oh yes. Yes. I have experienced those anthologies <laughs> and that's cool, but yeah. you know, I'm all about poetry for the people. Right. And so you talked about that word accessible. Yeah. And that, that was important to me. So I wanted to make sure that happened. And then the, the third thing is I had to like the poems, right? Like, I got to love it. I got to like this poem a lot. And there was a poet who is not in the book. And I wanted a certain poem of hers. And I really liked it. And it, it couldn't work out. Conventional wisdom says, well, then go get another poem by her. But no, this is the poem I wanted. This is the poem I love. This is the poem that fit, that worked with what we were trying to do. So she's not in the book now. So I wasn't going to sacrifice the meaningfulness, the authenticity the beauty the joy the sweetness of this anthology for whatever sort of petty grievances or or literary you know <laughs> you know sort of biases i had it wasn't about me when i think about this book i think about mahogany brown who allowed me to use the title this is the honey from her poem mm-hmm. and in her, her second stanza she says Soil creates things, art births change, this is the honey and don't it taste like promise where your heart is an accordion and our laughter is a soundtrack. Friend, dance to this good song, look how it holds our names.
0: And speaking of names, Toy Derricotte. And Pearl Cleage are included in this, and I was very happy to see their names. It's been a minute for me personally. I just I'm very fond of both of their work. So to have it pop here, I was just like, oh, this is nice, because now some younger folks are going to see their names in a different way. Because you may right. you just may not know Toy or Pearl's bylines the way you would have coming up in an earlier point. I think you and I have a similar right. timeline. So that was kind of great too. And I love the idea that it is always about the book. And always about right. how it h- stands on its own. Right. I think that's hugely, hugely important. But did you surprise yourself at all? I mean, cl- you had a clear vision. And yes, I mean, maybe you get to use some of the... Pro- but I'm talking about like genuine surprise. Like when you held the final thing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not possible to be surprised when you're engineering
1: this gorgeous yeah. thing. But- I- I've been so close to it. Okay. I think tonight when I sort of sit down for some tea and I look through it and feel it, because I just got this today.
0: It's beautiful. I'm so pleased with this final package. I am so, so pleased. Like, they got the colors right. They got the texture right. It just, it feels good in your hand. And sometimes you want to hold a beautiful thing.
1: I think maybe I'll be surprised then. Okay. But uh, I set out to do this. Right. Okay. This was my goal. Mm Mm-hmm. So hopefully I achieved it.
0: Uh, As your reader, yes. Yes, you do.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: You know, I'm not for I'm a bookseller. I'm not formally trained in poetry. I'm just a fan. And to be able to sit down and feel like I've had this. Very special. Very sort of not intense, but like. I'm really, really glad I read this book. I'm really, really glad that I I took time with it. But also, I can see lots of different folks coming to it and dipping in, dipping out, reading it straight through. It is one of those anthologies where you're like, well, there really is actually something. I mean, Jacqueline Woodson's in here, and I think people sometimes forget, even though Brown Girl Dreaming is Brown Girl Dreaming. Right, right. I think sometimes people are like, oh, right.
1: Jackie's a Renaissance writer. She yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly it.
0: And Jason Reynolds is in here yep. too, and I think people sometimes don't always remember that you know poetry is a big part of
1: his. And work. it's always my friends who are the hardest to get in the book. Hmm. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, called Jackie and Jason so much just to because they're so busy and they're doing stuff. But I was committed to making sure that each and every voice that I wanted in this book. And of course, there are some voices that didn't make it that I couldn't get in here. But I feel like we did a pretty good job of creating this sort of poet puree. Right. Oh, I like and that. It's,
0: poet
1: it's, it's sweet. It's real sweet. And I mean, there were poets who had a couple pieces and I could not choose. Yeah. And okay. I couldn't decide. Okay. And, and I because I had made a decision, it's going to be all living poets, one poem per poet, and it can't be anthologized.
2: Mm.
1: And it has to fit in one of these themes. Yep. And then there were there were a couple pieces where I could not decide. They fit all this, and I could not decide. And I said, but wait a minute, Kwame, you're the editor. You can do what you want. <laughs> so That's true. You're gonna have two poems.
0: So, Kwame, let me ask, do you have a piece that you really love? A particular poem that you really, really love from This Is the Honey that you'd like to read?
1: Well, you know, I do. And you know, we talked about the memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. Mm-hmm. And- the motivation to write that came because I realized that even though I was having this really successful literary career that I wasn't very happy, wasn't sleeping well. And it because my mother had passed, I hadn't dealt with that. My marriage had ended and my oldest daughter, she and I were estranged. And I was like, how did I get to this point in my life? And so I am so grateful that a year after this, this memoir was published. It was the hardest book I ever wrote. Family reacted to it in very different ways. Some very negatively, but I came out on the other side, having, having much better relationships with my family, my sisters, my father, my wife of 24 years. We're, We're the best of friends. My daughter and I are just, we're healing and connecting. So the book did it what it was supposed to do. Okay,
0: great. You know,
1: one of the ways I got there was by reading, and I read a lot of poetry mm-hmm. as I was trying to figure myself out, and I'm still figuring myself out. And one of the poets who I read and who I love and who I know and who is in th- anthologized in "This Is the Honey," I'm going to read his piece because it really gave me some hope. And, you know. Reminded me of the J. California novel, Some Love. I think it's Some Love, Some Hope. I can't remember, but anyway. This is an incomprehensive list of all the reasons I know I married the right person by Clint Smith.
0: Oh, I loved this poem. I'm so glad you included this poem. This poem is so great.
1: Because on weekends, you wrap your hair with a scarf, and you have so many different scarves that come in so many different colors. And now when I'm out in the world, every time I see a colorful scarf, I think of you. And I think of the weekends, which are the best days, because they are the days that you and I don't have to worry about work or deadlines. Just bagels and bacon and watching this small human we created discover the world for the first time. Because when you laugh, you kind of cackle. No, I mean, you really cackle. Like you take a deep breath in and out comes something unfiltered and unrehearsed. And it's cute, but also scary. And isn't that the perfect description of love? Because when you watch The Voice, you talk to the judges as if they are waiting for your consultation. Because you always ask the restaurant to make your pizza extra crispy. And then you put it in the oven for another 30 minutes anyway after they deliver it. Because when you wake our son up in the morning, you are always singing. Because when I read you poems, I love you always close your eyes and tell me your favorite line. Because on my birthday, you had my friends make barbecue and we had leftovers for weeks. Because I like my cinnamon rolls with maple syrup and honey mustard and you still kiss me in the morning. Because you hold my hand when I'm scared and don't know how to say it.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: hmm Oh, That's Kwame the- Alexander, thank you so much for including Clint's poem in this anthology. That's just one of the treats. People are going to find, in this is the honey, and it's just yeah. I'm I'm smiling just thinking about it again. Thank you so much. The crossover obviously is out. There's so much on the shelves for middle readers, but also "Father's Cry at Night" is your memoir that I hope people will pick up, and I hope they try out the fried chicken recipe as well. Because I'm really not kidding. I will do it. I just
1: <laughs> send me a I haven't done
0: it yet. Oh, I don't know. That that feels like oy, there the could pleasure. be a lot of sloppiness, but we'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, Kwame. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.